0: Everybody, good to see you. Welcome to Life Community Church. We're glad you're here. You know there's lots of things that you could do on a Sunday, and you picked to come here, and so we're just glad that you're here. We are a church for the city. We see this every week. It's our mission. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live up to that identity by pursuing four values: to practice love with everyone always, to give more than what makes sense, to chase. After the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives and to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. If you have questions about that, I'm certainly available after service. You can go to our information desk or even check out our website for our statement of faith. When you came in, you got a bulletin on the bottom of that. It's a connection card. If you're new here, I'd love to get to know you. Not in super deep in invasive ways. Just like to connect with you and see if you have any questions about us. And always a good rhythm for you if you have prayer requests Who are regular attenders here, just to let us know how we can come around you and care for you and pray for you. Even if it's for somebody who's in your family or related to you, we'd love to be a part of your journey there too. On, on the back of it, just a couple announcements that I want to go over. Um, our sin ministry is going to Puerto Rico So February 26th is the last day that you can sign up to go on that mission trip. And so if you're interested in that, there's some details in there, and you can stop by our information desk. The second thing is our bowling party is coming up here. Uh, It's always a huge success. We fill up the entire bowling center, and so we've had to make it sort of unfortunately. It's it's kind of first come, first serve, and so uh, if you're interested in going to that, meeting new people and bringing your kids, so it's got a good deal on that. You can sign up at the information desk and just know it's, it, it eventually might run out. So we hate turning people away, but that might be the reality. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Job 22. We're going to start in that area today. We're going to essentially be in six chapters uh, totality today. Not that we're going to read all six chapters, but we're going to overview six chapters. Uh, Mondays are my day off, and they're affectionately called Daddy-Daughter Days in my household, and so we like to do lots of things on Monday. Uh, When it's warm, we like to get on our bikes, and we like to ride our bikes to Wicker Park, and my daughter, Camille, she can ride her bike, and she leads, she leads uh, the bike ride, and she believes that every time that we go there that she's going to find a new shortcut that gets us there faster, uh, that I don't know about, but it just happens to be that we take the same path every time. Uh, She's just convinced it's shorter every time we take it. Uh, And so it's fun to go there. We play, and then at some point I let them play by themselves, and I kind of sit back and I just kind of watch. I'm a observer by nature. And and so it's kind of fun, if I can be honest, to kind of watch the different kind of parents and the different types of parenting that happens in such a small space. I'm not trying to be judgmental of people. It's just interesting. It's amazing. It's fascinating. And from what I've seen, I could really sort of categorize three different types of parenting that I see. There's the, like the protector parent, like I call them any moment parents or specifically any moment mommy, who believes that at any point that the worst thing in history could happen in that moment and so they, sort of like a dog marking its territory, set up a force field around their kids to make sure they're protected from themselves, and ultimately sending out the vibe to say, hey, this is my space, right? And you're not welcome in here because things can go really south in a fast and a hurry. And so there's like any moment, mommy. And then I observe like this guy or parent style, not necessarily a guy all the time, but I call them uh, disconnected daddy. It's a, it's a person that's never been outside of the house before, seemingly because uh, they are enamored with all the shiny objects in creation, and they just get locked on, and it's so alluring that they can't gaze away from it to see that their kids are setting the playground on fire, right? And then any moment, mommy is just running in fear with disgust on her face at the moment. I can't believe this. And then my favorite that I see is, let's see what happens granddad. <laughs> let's just see what happens here. Uh, Like, they're just going to let their kids approach some sort of unsafe boundary or situation, and they're just like, let's see what happens here. Like, this could go really great, or it could go terrible, we're just going to let it play out. And certainly, any moment mommy runs in fear, and she has disgust on her face again. And then there's the fourth category of parent who watches other parents parent their children so they can write sermons about what they see. (laughs) And nobody likes that guy. We'll call him obnoxious observer. <laughs> now, I will admit that I switch in between any moment mommy and let's see what happens granddad frequently in my time at the park. And it's, it's interesting to me to see how our knowledge and our fears and our hopes and our experiences sort of shape our worldview in a way that shapes the way that we parent. There's all sorts of different parenting styles, and I'm not going to say that one is better than the next. But it was what is even more interesting to me is to see how those Hopes and fears and knowledge and experience and concerns sort of shape our viewpoint on God. And and we really have come close to people who have different worldviews about God in the book of Job. We see this in these three friends in Job. Now, certainly we can laugh about parenting styles, but certainly we would admit that there's flaws in every parenting style. There's, There's not a perfect parent that exists in the world. None of us are. And so we, we, at the same time, can see in our friends some very critical fall, flaws, some fatal flaws that are important for us to notice that will give us, hopefully, a better understanding of who God is. Not that we could ever possess the perfect theology, but we certainly can have some that are more helpful than others. And so in these six chapters from Job 22 through 27, uh, we're going to see more of the same. Job's friends are going to contend that Job is... that he's sinful and he needs to repent. And, And they will go on to say some very wicked things about Job. They'll accuse him of doing some very wicked things. And Job, resolute as always in his blamelessness, that he is not sinful, that he has not done anything to deserve what has happened to him. And he's becoming more and more emboldened with this idea of having a date with God in the high courts to plead his case which makes his friends more and more irate at his seemingly great pride. And so if we look at these chapters from a 10,000-foot view, which I think is the aim of the author of Job because it's written mostly in poetry, we will notice words that are spoken from three distinct viewpoints on God's interaction with humanity. We have done quite a bit of conversation about systems and structures that we see in Job and his three friends. And that's sort of the main point and the main purpose of Job is that you would see and think more deeply about God and His governance. The book of Job is less about practical wisdom to live by daily. And so here we're going to walk into three interpretations Of God's governance today, and then ultimately what we want to do is talk about the fatal flaw that we see in each one of those viewpoints, and then hopefully at the end that we might come and have a better theology because of it. So if we turn to chapter 22, we'll just jump in here, 22 verses 2 through 4. This is Eliphaz, he's speaking to Job, and he says, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. It is any pleasure, is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? And so Eliphaz is opening up this chapter in 22 with a response to Job from chapter 21, where Job is seemingly challenging the goodness of God. Job sees himself as this innocent man that is undeservedly suffering, and then he goes on to lament about wicked people who prosper, and they seem to end their lives in prosperity. And so Eliphaz responds with two rhetorical questions that we see here in the beginning of 22, and those questions say this, is that the... the, The wisest, the strongest, the most successful people, the ones that we value the most here on earth, those people, wisest, strongest, successful, are they of any value to God? And the implied answer from Eliphaz's question is no. There is none of value. There is no one that has existed or will ever exist that has any value to God, nor anyone who could please God. No one that could ever do anything to put God in his debt. And so this is the viewpoint of Eliphaz. That God created the world made by God, for God, through God. Not out of any sort of deficiency or any sort of lacking. So God made us and he doesn't need anything from us. He made us and he doesn't need anything from us. So God doesn't need you, Job. God doesn't need you, Job. You need God. And so this is a very mechanical view of God. This is a mechanical God. It's to say that God isn't interested in you personally. He's just interested in you doing the right thing. You pop in goodness, you get reward. You pop in wickedness, you get suffering. In Eliphaz's estimation, it would be beneath God to even listen to somebody like Job, let alone have a, a day in court where he could plead his case, considering, in Eliphaz's opinion, how sinful Job is. Ophaz believes that God cannot be moved by humanity. And he goes on in 22, verse 12, he says, This is not God high in the heavens. See the highest stars, how lofty they are. What he's saying is that you look at the the stars in the skies and the one that's furthest away, that God is up there. He is supreme. He is high. He is lifted up. He is wise. And life is about living in reverence for His supremacy and His sovereignty and His wisdom, it would believe that God would never leverage anything like evil or suffering because it would be beneath Him, beneath His holiness, beneath His splendor. And it would be to imply that God doesn't care for us in a personal way, that He might use suffering and evil to bring people to Himself and to promote His glory and fame on the earth. All of this is foolishness to Eliphaz. You get what you get. God doesn't take much of an interest in you personally. Sin and suffering is a human problem, and it's beneath God's time to interact with such people. And then Eliphaz lays out this hypothetical viewpoint that he believes that Job upholds. In Job twenty-two thirteen 13 through 14, he says, but you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. He believes that Job is saying that we have a God that created everything and then essentially just left it to its own devices. God created it and sort of just said, let it go. That he is God, that he's above in the clouds, and there's a thick veil of clouds that he can no longer see humanity and interact with. Humanity, it's, it's, if I could quote a, a famous infomercial, it's as if God said it and forget it, right? That great Ronco commercial. This is sort of like disconnected daddy. It's to view God as a watchmaker. A watchmaker builds the watch and he makes those intricate gears work together and then he sells it, he gives away and he no longer has connection with that watch. It runs itself. And he accuses Job of this because Job seems to say that God doesn't care, that God isn't good. He lets good people suffer. He lets wicked people prosper. And Eliphaz is right. Job is accusing God of some very poor things. He's accusing God of being distant and not caring. But Job would go on to say that, Eliphaz, you're not capturing essentially what I'm fully believing about God in this moment. In 24, he laments about the wicked. And so in chapter 24, verses 1 through 5, Job laments about the wicked. He says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him and ever see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey on the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. They hold like wild donkeys in, in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. And Job is saying, look, this isn't exactly what I'm saying, Eliphaz. Yes, wicked people prosper. Judgment doesn't seem to come quickly on them. And he confesses that I'm questioning why those who want to be near God, that they never see God. Why is it in my longing for God that God doesn't show himself in my life? And he goes on to talk about wicked people, and he writes himself in a way that he builds himself as better. He says, they, those people, those wicked people. Job says, I'm superior to those people by the way that he writes. But he doesn't believe that those people will go unpunished. He just believes that the punishment will be delayed. This is the difference in these hypothetical worlds that Eliphaz... Has accused Job of believing in it's a subtle difference. In Job 24, 22 through 25, he says, Yet God prolongs the life of the Almighty by his power. They rise up when they are in despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. It is, If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show me that there is nothing in what I say? And so Job has sort of changed his belief a little bit. Whether that change came from a longing for some comfort of eventual justice that might be applied to him, or he's always believed this, we don't know. But he tells us that yes, Yes, I see the wicked prosper, and they may prosper for a little while, but when they're gone, when they're dead, they will be cut off, and they will be punished. They will be brought low. This is a God with a delayed response. It's sort of a, let's see what happens, granddad. We'll let things play out, and then we'll punish and reward people at the end of this. And so here, here's the three kind of hypothesis of God's interaction with humanity that we see in Job 22 through 27. You've got mechanical God, you've got watchmaker God, and you've got delayed response God. These are all uh, hypothesized understandings of God and his governance in these chapters. And what would be good wisdom for us is to expose the fatal flaw in each one of these. Because listen, there is truth in these viewpoints. There's just some fatal flaws that need to be addressed. And in that, we might get a fuller picture, not a full picture of God, but a fuller picture of God and his governance. And so, if we look at this idea of a mechanical God, really the flaw there is to believe that God doesn't have any affection, nor does he take pleasure in his children. So, certainly, Eliphaz is right. He is right that God made us not from any lacking, not from any deficiency. He's right to say that God doesn't need us. We need God. He doesn't need us. That's certainly true. But Eliphaz speaks that in a vacuum of experience and knowledge knowledge that he doesn't have that we have because we've read Job 1 and 2 and we've seen God talk to the accuser, Satan, and we've seen God say, have you considered my servant Job, there is none like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, turns away from evil. Does that sound like a mechanical God? Or does that sound like a God that delights in his children? So yes, it's true that God doesn't need us. And yes, it's true that we can't bring any value to God. And yes, it's true that we could never put God in our debt. But the better news is, is that God still chooses to delight in us despite us. He chooses to delight in you and I, fully aware of our inability of giving him anything back of value. David writes in Psalm 18, he says this, he says, he brought me, God brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why did God rescue David? David because he delighted in him. And so the fatal flaw here is to think that God is so high, so holy, that you come to the conclusion that he doesn't care or delight in you. Both are true. And it doesn't comprehend or compromise God in any way for those things to be true, because in his delighting in you, it's not even about you. God doesn't delight in us so that we could feel a special sense of I'm important. God delights in you, despite you, because it rolls back to him. That God loves me even while I was a sinner. That God loves me and I can't outrun his love for me. It rolls back to him that we would say to the world how great our God is. That even though we are utterly undeserving of it, yet our God is still near us. And so the the flaw in Eliphaz's belief is to not recognize that God delights in his creation from his own choosing. He delights in his creation from his own choosing. The second viewpoint that we see in this chapter is this watchmaker God, a distant and uncaring God who's unconcerned for his creation. It essentially says that creation is left to deal with itself and outside the reality where he creates it God is uncaring and He's distant and it would contend that creation was made pretty much sufficient for itself. That in God's creating of the world, He has taken great care to make sure that it is self-sufficient. That it wouldn't feel His absence because it doesn't long for His presence. Once a fine watch is made, it just goes. There's very minimal maintenance required. And so that viewpoint would mean this for creation would mean that our hope is not in God. It would mean that our hope is in ourselves. That we were designed with all the tools that we need to do well. And this life is about you figuring out what makes you happy, what makes you fulfilled, what makes you satisfied. You get what you get. It's your choice. It's based upon your decisions. This viewpoint would say that you're enough. Hey, you're enough. You don't have lacking. You're enough. You just need to unlock the code. You need to figure out what makes you happy. You've got all the potential. I was listening to the news about the, just the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and all of the people on that helicopter. And I just remember listening to a sports guy, and he was just talking about Kobe, and it was great. And then he just said, like, man, he had limitless potential. He had limited potential, and in my head, I just thought, he's dead. That is the definition of limited potential. But this is the viewpoint that humanity takes, that we are limitless in our potential, that we are enough. We just have to unlock the code, and unfortunately, this has become popular Christian belief, that you have all that you need inside of you to flourish. You just have to figure out the code that unlocks it all. You just have to convince yourself that you're enough. You just have to tell yourself that enough. It's in your mind. It's not true. But Listen, that's not a Christian belief. That is practical atheism. When we teach God in a way that moralizes Him, and it makes Him into a list of applicable, practical steps that I can take. It makes this life about God giving me wisdom to have a better life. The cross is there for a reason. Jesus died for something, and it wasn't because we were enough, and he just wanted us to know how much we love him. He died for us because we were lacking. He died for us because he loved us enough to take on that lacking, our sin. We are not enough. Christ is. We are not enough. Christ is. And so we live for Him. It's not that we don't want to be better people, but we do it in Him and by Him and through Him. And so the fatal flaw in this watchmaker idea is believing that you're enough because you're not enough. Christ is. And then we look at this idea of this concept brought forth by Job and this delayed response, God, where God sort of takes a wait-and-see approach where justice is inevitable and, and, and which means that it doesn't happen here necessarily, that justice happens after we die. And certainly that's true. There is truth to that. But the biggest flaw here is to let us box God into an understanding that removes complexity and grants us peace of mind that we know the ways in the mind of God. It doesn't account for the fact that God might leverage evil and suffering and hardship to bring people back to himself. That people who act wicked might not always stay wicked. That God might let them taste the bitterness of the world to save them. Or that people who are good might be in it for themselves. That their goodness is not a response to God. And so in this viewpoint, the flaw would, not to be, would be not to see God's mystery serves His glory. Like if we knew everything there was to know about God, if we comprehended all the ways of God and all the minds of God, who gets the honor? Who gets the praise? Who is worshiped? If we conquer God, we are the ones that get the praise. And so that is why Paul writes to the church in in Rome. Who can know the mind of God and who has served as his counselor? It is the mystery of God that serves his glory. There are just things that I'm not going to know. There are things that I'm not going to understand. There are ways that are just not evident to me. And that actually makes God bigger and grander and greater and more divine than I'm naturally inclined to believe. And it's not as if God is afraid of us seeking it out either. I'm not telling you just play dumb. Don't know. Don't, just play dumb. Be sheep. That's not what I'm saying. I mean Solomon writes this in Proverbs 25 too. He said, It is the glory of God to conceal things. But the glory of kings is to search things out. It is to say that the fame and the greatness of God is to hide and conceal things. But for us to search it out... In our searching, we will find God to be more beautiful, and delightful, and grander than we possibly could ever imagine. It would be like to, to take our human bodies, these beautiful creations. And I wouldn't suggest that going around and telling people that today. That would be it could get weird. But if we look at our bodies, yes, we can say these are beautiful creations. But if we search in them more, if we look at how the brain communicates to the muscles. If we look at how the eye takes what's out there and it makes a a vision. If we would put our arms underneath the telescope or the microscope, don't put it under telescope, microscope, and see the intricate design on the cellular level, would God be more glorious or less? He's more glorious. And so God is more glorious in our searching because we learn deeper and more complex things that are beautiful about our God. God is deep and he's hidden and it's beautiful. He's deep and he's hidden in all of creation and all of our events and all of our situations. And so we take the complexity of all of these systems because here's what we naturally wanna do. We wanna box everything in so we can understand it. But we have said this and hinted at it and I tell you this today, Your box understanding of God, your systems about God, they don't save anyone. All they do is make it a a place where I don't have to fear so much. These friends are about a system, and they are oppressing Job with trying to make sure they're not trying to please God. They just want to be right. They don't want to have anything that's untidy. They want everything to fit in their system. And so in Job 22, we see this interesting interaction between Job and and Eliphaz, where Eliphaz is essentially asking, Job, just confess, repent of your sin, and God will restore you. Eliphaz is saying, I don't know what you've done, just confess, because confessing brings blessing. But Job doesn't want to confess, he wants God. To to confess to a sin that he didn't commit would subdue and destroy his integrity. It would make God's blessing greater than God's presence. To confess to a, a sin that you didn't do just to get favor with God, what does that say about your relationship with God? It's to say that you want God's blessing, not God's presence. And so, we have to wrestle with all of these black and whites and all of these truths. Faith is living in tension. That we have a God that is in control, that he's high, that he's sovereign, that he's supreme, that he's wise. He's greater than I am. He needs nothing from me. I can't bring anything of value to, to him. But yet he's near. And he's beautiful. He's not distant He cares for me. We have to wrestle with complex ideas that don't always fit our sensibilities. Faith implies a tension that we live in and our understandings with God. These men have tried to condemn Job with a system, and that's all it's done is condemn him. It's not saved him. We believers in Christ are thankful for a wrinkle and a loophole in a system that saved us. Without Christ, we're condemned. Without a wrinkle, without a loophole, we're condemned. It is by his grace that we are saved, that God looks past our unworthiness. And so we wrestle with a God that is both loving and brings wrath. We wrestle with a God in tension in our faith, a God that is high but is near. And it's for his glory that his mysteries are everywhere. Because it can never be about us. It always has to be about him. And so we're going to head into a time of communion today. Where where we are going to come around and celebrate the flaw. Not the flaw. But the wrinkle that allows us to be saved. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. His blood covers us. That we and be righteous. We can stand before God. And so we're going to enter in a time where we just join around the table of God. And, and through the juice that we drink, remember the blood of Christ and the sacrifice. And through the, the cracker that we eat, remember his broken body on the cross for us. And so we're, if you're in here today, I would just ask you just to take some time and, and weigh your heart. Confess the things that are your shortcomings to God. Get yourself in a place where you're right before God. And as always, if you're in here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, just know that we're glad that you're here. We want you to know our Savior, but understand that this is time for the family of God, and so it's okay just to sit there and reflect. And because there's more people in this room, we, we would ask that you would be conscious of other people in your rows getting in and out during this time of communion. So let's take some time to wrestle, to live in this tension of a God that's greater than what we could imagine, that's come around the table. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today and we praise you as a God that is not within our grasp to comprehend. It is your mysteries that serve your glory. And so God, will you help us live a faith that lives in tension with understanding you as so many different things that are outside of our mind to understand. And Lord, will you build our faith and our heart to be in a position where we just trust you Even though it doesn't make sense, Lord, that we trust you in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. We Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord. God, we celebrate what you've done for us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.